0: This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So as part of my work at the Buddhist Centre, I do a lot of school visits, so I go out to schools, schools come to the, the centre, and I often start by showing the kids a lot of images. Uh, maybe about, I've got 12 very different images and I show them the images and I often ask them, uh, well just ask for the responses really, and maybe ask them what's their favourite one and why Uh, And I get quite a lot of just authentic and refreshing responses. So it might be, you know, I like the face, it's really pretty or that one calms me down or I remember one boy said, um, that cartoon image looks a bit like a pig. Uh, kind of took me aback a little bit uh, until I looked at it and I thought oh, he's right really uh, someone else saying I don't like that one because it's really spooky um, but yeah the, the kind of authentic responses and obviously when we come to kind of Buddhist myth and symbol and imagery uh, we start with that first authentic response um, and we'll all have very Individual responses to um, images and pujas and sutras. There's, there's no right answers in a way. So for myself, um, I just really dislike these Thai rupas that you have. I, I don't have any kind of connection with them at all. I find them. Uh, I don't have any response to them. Whereas um, Burmese rupas, I really love them. I, I, I often really like the face. I make a real kind of connection with them. Um, so of course these responses aren't the aren't the final word. Uh, we can learn to appreciate images or pujas or sutras that at first we might might just seem kind of alien or or unattractive to us. But eventually, kind of to, to move us in our in our depths, in our heart. We obviously need to develop some kind of strong attraction and connection. Um, so I thought we'd just start by looking around at some of the images some of the paintings in the, in the Shrine Room here that Alaka has painted over the last 15 years. Just, just, um, just as a way of getting into the, into the theme and the talk. Um, maybe just for three or four minutes, we'll just have a, have a look. And if you want to get up uh, and have a look at the other side, yeah, feel, feel free to do that. Maybe just notice is there a particular figure you're drawn to and why that might be we might not be able to articulate the reason. Is there any image that um, you know you, you find the opposite of attractive? You know, just take a minute or two just to look around the room. Okay. So we'll come back to these images via kind of <coughs> a, a circuitous route uh, by way of a, a bit of Autobiography, more kind of connections with Western culture, with um, Banty's emphasis on the importance of the arts, looking at imagination, what it might be, and looking at its opposite, literalism, and what that what that might mean. And we'll come back to the uh, we'll come back to the images at the end. Um, so I've always been interested in the in the arts since I was quite small, uh, and by the arts. Uh, when I'm talking this morning about the arts, I want us to kind of dismiss any idea of um, listening to posh music in a dinner jacket or whatever. You know, I'm just I'm talking about painting, images, colour, sound, music, films, plays, that kind of thing, dancing. Um, I loved drawing till I went to school, uh, and it was marked, and then suddenly it um, uh, you know it became it was something I was either good at or bad at, and it kind of. <laughs> Um, I stopped enjoying it really but I'd like to get back to it sometime I uh, hope there's still time um, but I always loved reading and drama uh, and I you know managed to kind of sustain that through school and decided that's what I wanted to do at university um, so I did four years at university and although I really loved um, a lot of what we looked at, a lot of the drama, the fiction, was really, really useful. I realised that there wasn't enough there for me to hang a life on. Um, I really needed practical ways of changing my life. Um, you know, dealing with all these crazy, or literal, you know, literally crazy um, states of mind that we get into. I needed something kind of all-absorbing and meaningful. Um, I needed something. Um, yeah, to to change my life, and I needed other people to do it with as well. Maybe most importantly, I needed to find it, find like minded people, and you know I didn't find that totally at university. So I tried um, Christianity for a while. I moved into a, a Christian Christian community, and um, I met some really good people, uh, really ethical people. But the whole language and imagery of Christianity I began to find quite um, unattractive. The the language of martyrdom, etc. It was only when I came across the Glasgow Buddhist Centre, it was only when I had the the real good fortune to come across the the Glasgow Buddhist Centre, that I knew I'd found what I was looking for. Um, And I moved into a community quite soon after university. But at the same time, the, um, the stories and the sutras and the images and the symbols just seemed a bit alien to me. They seemed strange and a bit alien. Uh, and I think that's why I tried Christianity first, because I wasn't kind of convinced that I'd be able to connect with, with all the kind of imagery and symbolism of, of Buddhism. Um, perhaps because there's something willfully Western about me. So there's this tension um, between uh, the music and the drama and the fiction that I loved uh, even though I knew I couldn't hang a life on it um, and the fact that you know Buddhism, I'd found Buddhism, it thrilled me I knew the truth was here um, but it was a kind of different country culturally and um, I, really, I really wanted, I really longed for a synthesis I really wanted the two uh, to, to come together uh, and I still do, um, so that desire and frustration and frustration uh, and the attempt to to kind of resolve that tension has been very much part of my, my order life and, and it still is um, so that's why when I, when I first came across the the movement, it was so important for me to read um, Slangrechtud's teaching on the religion of art. Um, I can't remember what year he wrote, he wrote The Religion of Art. Does anybody know? It was pretty early on, maybe in the fifties. And it's quite kind of old, you know, it's a very old fashioned style in a way, but I still find it thrilling and I still do. Uh, The first paragraph, he says it might be possible by developing the implications of that part of art, which is also a province of religion to promote a way of life dedicated to the realisation of values in a manner attractive to those who are only repelled when it's presented to them from a formally religious point of view. It might even be possible to inaugurate for such people a religion of art. Um, and I think I find that so exciting because um, it seemed to suggest that there was a possibility of a, a synthesis, yeah, a synthesis between uh, Buddhism and the, the culture I, I grew up with. And elsewhere, I read that you know, Banti was was saying that whatever culture Buddhism comes across, uh, it tries to speak the language of, of that cult- culture, and he really emphasised making links and connections with our with our own culture, with Buddhism and our and our own culture, um, and that gave me permission to bring my enthusiasms into my into my Buddhist life, um, and you know, it has been one of the Sangharatchada's emphasis of the of the movement, uh, the importance of, of the arts and culture, which is really quite unusual in kind of Buddhist um, circles, really. Um, I met an order member called Kovara and I started going on arts retreats um, and I came to which were run here. That's why I ended up in Norwich eventually. Um, so in the early 90s, I helped Kovoda and Bodhi Vajra and various other, other people run arts retreats, uh, and a lot of them were here at Padmaloka. Um, there was two particularly that I connected with, uh, one was called the Game of Life and one was called the Game of Death. Um, and the Game of Life was based around the Wheel of Life. The Game of Death was based around the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And what we'd do, we'd split into two groups. Uh, Subhuti would give a talk in the morning, um, a, a Dharma talk, basically. And then we'd split into two groups. One group, led by Chintamani would create a kind of an environment. Um, so for the Game of Life, each of the realms, and the, the six realms in the Wheel of Life, hell realm, heaven realm, etc. We'd kind of create a realm in one room, a heaven realm or a hell realm. Another group would kind of create a drama or a kind of musical drama. And in the evening, the two groups would, would meet together and we'd present a kind of play or a, or a ritual in, in that space. Um, and it was very, very engaging. It's, I think it's the, still the kind of favourite retreats I've, I've, I've ever been on. And those images uh, really stay with me still. Um for the hungry ghost realm we we created this whole kind of little soho environment where we kind of yeah, it was it was a very strange little play. I won't go into it. But anyway, it was um, the images I kinda of get them out of my mind. Uh for the, the Game of Death retreat we had one room where we we're um, we made our own bodies, our own death masks, wrote our own obituaries, created a kind of mandala for the body to hold. There was a there's a kind of whole mandala of bodies there, and we'd sit in front of our body and, and meditate, and that was, you know, that was very very powerful indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was a kind of beginning of a kind of synthesis for me for the, the two the two to, to come to come together, and the drama the sorry the dharma just seemed rooted in um, colour and sound and, and drama, uh, and was very very effective. Many of us just also, over the years, just kept our ears open as to what Banty was reading or recommending um, in terms of art and music, and fiction, all the rest of it. And the movement went through various phases where certain books that Banti uh, read would be passed around. It got quite silly at times, but um, I think we needed, we needed guidance. So there was a Blake phase, there was a D.H. Lawrence phase. There's a Cecil Collins face, the, the artist Cecil Collins. I never quite understood that face, but um, lots of people got into that. Uh, I was dejected to read in one seminar that Banty thought Monty Python was quite violent and unpleasant. Uh, and then in a later seminar, I was really heartened to read that he thought The Life of Brian was a Buddhist film. So I was uh, <laughs> finally justified in my love of Monty Python. Um, so before we, we move on to talk more generally about the imagination I'd just like to talk briefly about some of the, the connections, uh, important connections I've made uh, over the years in terms of Western culture and the Dharma. Um, a very early one was The Light of Asia by Sir Edwin Arnold. I don't know if many of you have read it but I really kind of recommend that. It's the life of the Buddha um, in a a kind of Western style really, and it's very moving, it's very, very well written. I've got a large uh, folder of poetry that I've collected over the years, poets like Walt Whitman and Rumi, who's a great favourite in the movement. I think he's the most popular poet in America, Rumi, strangely, or well, maybe not so strange. Um, But I just want to talk about one film and a couple of Uh, books. Uh, The film I'd like to talk about briefly is Andrei Rubilev, which is a film by the Russian filmmaker Tarkovsky. Um, Tarkovsky's films can be a bit challenging at times. I've really recommended them to people. I've I've sometimes watched a Tarkovsky film with people and they've kind of gone unconscious or or fallen asleep. Um, I can nudge them but they're, they're really worth the effort, I think. They're poetic, they're beautiful, they're, they're consciously trying to evoke themes involving kind of ethics and spirituality. And Andrei Rublev is about uh, an icon painter in medieval Russia, Andrei Rublev, who's also a monk. And because of the, the violent times he lives in, because he's forced to kill somebody who's trying to rape this woman, he um, takes a vow of silence and he decides he doesn't want to paint anymore. He falls into a kind of despair really. And, um, but eventually uh, towards the end of the film he meets this um, boy who's casting a great bell for a, a wealthy prince. Um, and the, prin- the prince's men have gone round the area just looking for somebody who can cast this bell. They've gone to the boy's father The boy's father has died of the plague. The boy's whole family has died of the plague. Uh, But Boris is the name of the boy. He says to the the princess men, look, my father passed me the secret of the bell, how to make bells, I can do it. He's only about 16. Uh, So they're really, really reluctant at first, but finally say, all right, get on the horse, come with us. Um, And the last half hour of the film is about the boy uh, making the bell, searching for the right clay, uh, making sure that um, the clay is fired at the right temperature. Uh, And it's it's incredibly tense because he knows if he mucks up, if he makes a mess of this, uh, he's for it really. He's, at the very least, he's going to get flogged. Um, But finally the day comes, the prince arrives, there's this huge big gathering, everybody's kind of bowing down to the prince and all the men. Uh, one of Boris's helpers takes the big kind of clapper and the bell rings out and there's this beautiful sound and he's, he's managed it. Um, and there's, you know, just a kind of great cheer. Uh, but then in the next scene, we see the boy just kind of sobbing his heart out in the arms of the monk. Um, it's like pouring with rain. He's lying in the mud, uh, being comforted by the Andrei Rublev. Uh, partly the tensions just, you know, finally got to him, it's finally broken. But also he says to Andrei Rublev, my father didn't pass me the secret. You know, he was really kind of a real tight one. He, he didn't pass me on anything, he didn't tell me anything. So in other words, uh, Boris has worked entirely intuitively. Uh, using the little information he, he knows, he's just kind of intuitively and kind of miraculously created this, this kind of work of art. And it just inspires Andrei Rublev to start painting again. So the two of them are going to go off, the boy's going to cast the bell, Andrei Rublev is going to paint icons. And the last five minutes of the film, it's all been in black and white until then. And then we leave the story and it's just five minutes of, of these icons, these beautiful golds and reds and blues that Andrei Rublev's created. So it kind of just opens up into this kind of beautiful kind of trans, transcendent um, imagery, yeah. So that, that's the first, uh, the first one I wanted to mention. Um, another com- connection I've made, although it's not as consciously spiritual, is with um, the books of Cormac McCarthy. Um, so he wrote things like The Road and No Country for Old Men, so you might be more acquainted with the films. I can't watch the films. So I just find them too graphic uh, and too violent. Uh, although I think that you know they're probably good, um, good uh, adaptations. Um, in the novels, the, the kind of horror is distanced by the beauty of the language. Um, but I particularly recommend that are maybe more accessible, less violent. Are all the pretty horses, which Vira Shalin recommended to me about twenty years ago. Uh, and The Crossing, um, they are um, like, like his other books, they are bleak, you know, they're definitely bleak. Um, people do cruel things, very, very cruel things to each other. Uh, there's a kind of unforgiving landscape, which is also quite beautiful. But there's also moments of real tenderness and kindness in these books. Um, the two heroes, the different heroes in each book are, um, they're just very good people and uh, the tenderness and the beauty and the kindness in these books are kind of highlighted by the cruelty. So it's this cruelty and kind of tenderness are kind of living side by side and they kind of highlight each other and the effect I think is just having a sense of beauty and power and wonder and sympathy um there's a there's in the crossing the first third of the book is about uh Billy the hero um catching this wolf and then taking it back across the border to Mexico and letting it go. He somehow made a connection with this wolf uh and without any sentimentality um this kind of connection is. It's very strange, but it's really beautiful as well. He's brilliant. Cormac McCarthy is brilliant at describing wolves. So if you want to read a really good book about a wolf, you know, read The Crossing. Um, I think another thing that books like this do is kind of portray our dark side, the pain, the the dukkha of our lives, uh, and give it a voice. They don't indulge it, but um, And I think too easily, a lot of our negative mental states, um, we can just see them as psychological hindrances to get rid of as soon as we can. Um, Rather than, I think we need to really articulate and embrace our dukkha. And I think a lot of um, really good fiction, films, opera, whatever, really manages to do this. Uh, Embrace the dukkha, give it a voice, and uh, in that way, we can become more aware of it and somehow release it. It becomes beautiful almost. Um, so I talked of kind of sympathy and empathy in The <coughs> Crossing. Uh, and that's what a lot of good fiction um, stories, films can do, really help us empathise. Um, Banty again, he, he talks about that's one of the things that films can really do is help us empathise. And I don't know where I read it, but I read it somewhere that if he had his time again, Banty would be a filmmaker. I've said this to loads of people and they don't know what I'm talking about, but I read it in a seminar and I can't find it anymore, but it's there somewhere. Um, Charles Dickens is is really good at helping us empathise with people, and maybe particularly children perhaps because of his own life uh, in a blacking factory, the the years he spent in a blacking factory. Um, Oliver Twist's a good example. There's a character in Bleak House called Joe who sweeps the streets, basically, and he can't read and he can't write. I'll just read read a little um, excerpt from Bleak House about Joe the crossing sweeper. It must be a strange state to be like Joe, to shuffle through the streets unfamiliar with the shapes and in utter darkness as to the meaning of those mysterious symbols so abundant over the shops and at the corners of streets and on the doors and in the windows. To see people read and to see people write and to see the postman deliver letters and not to have the least idea of all that language and be to every scrap of it stone blind and dumb. It must be very puzzling to see the good company going to the churches on Sundays with their books in their hands and to think, what does it all mean? And if it means anything to anybody, how comes it means nothing to me? To be hustled and jostled and moved on and really to feel that it would appear to be perfectly true that I have no business here or there or anywhere and yet to be perplexed by the consideration that I am here somehow too and everybody overlooked me until I became the creature that I am. It must be a strange state, not merely to be told that I am scarcely human, but to feel it of my own knowledge all my life, to see the horses, dogs and cattle go by me and to know that in ignorance I belong to them and not to the superior beings in my shape whose delicacy I offend. Joe's ideas of a criminal trial or a judge or a bishop or a government or that inestimable jewel to him, the constitution should be strange. His whole material and immaterial life is wonderfully strange. His death, the strangest thing of all. Yeah. So it's not just pity. We, we feel, I think Dickens is good at making us realise that you know, we've been in that position ourselves. Not literally, uh, but that whole idea of being outside life and looking in. And somehow being a bit bewildered about what's going on is all is our experience as well at times. Yeah. Um, so just describing you know these the the movie and the and the books doesn't do them justice. Um, it's about our response to language and image and beauty. The images of Tarkovsky or the language of um, Cormac McCarthy, the energy and sympathy of Dickens, helps us build bridges to the beauty and the power and the energy and the compassion of the Dharma. Um, So the arts can help us build bridges, root our understanding of the Dharma in our own culture, uh, in color, in sound, in story and in images. But there's also a danger in trying to bring the two together that there's a kind of premature synthesis um, so I read this book a few years ago uh, called Cinema Nirvana and it was a Buddhist, a Buddhist writer trying to make connections between popular film and the Dharma and I just found it infuriating really. Um, so f- one example that I've often quoted is uh, he called James Bond a, a budding bodhisattva and uh, <laughs> James Bond is a charming sadist (laughs) and that's a different thing and uh, he also talked about Clint Eastwood in in similar terms. Um, So the Dharma is telling us something difficult and extraordinary and sublime and meaningful and the connections with our own culture, ideally, should lead us in in that direction. Banti said, Sangha has said that it will take centuries before there's a kind of real synthesis between Western art and and Buddhism. Um, And the fact is, so much of what we've been subjected to culturally has been so influenced by materialism or commercialism, by a culture that's so quick to to denigrate the the sublime or the spiritual or the meaningful. Um, You know, even a lot of my favourite writers, uh, Woody Allen for example, Talks about the total meaninglessness of existence, and he's not joking. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so there's a wealth of movies and painting and poetry out there, Uh, I think including Woody Allen, but yeah, let's not put up with second best. Um, So if we want to awaken the imagination or train the imagination, um, then let's read good books and watch good movies, listen to good music. (coughs) I don't necessarily mean highbrow stuff, I just mean good stuff that moves the heart, that helps us empathise, that helps us articulate our our dukkha, that releases blocked energy, which I think is what comedy is very good at, that evokes uh, tenderness and beauty. And in that way we build bridges to to these figures, really, um, who represent beauty and energy and tenderness to an infinite degree. Um, so I just, I just need to say that the arts isn't the only way of directing or training the imagination. Um, the metabhavna, we've talked about the metabhavna over the weekend, is another way. Imagination isn't the prerogative of, of artists or people interested in, in the arts. Um, you know, it can be the prerogative of scientists. Regis read that really good quote from Einstein yesterday. We're all imaginative beings. Imagination, in a way, is our element. Um, I was thinking last night, we love to say, what if? Um, so that what if can manifest as a beautiful story. What, uh, what if this icon painter in despair um, met a boy who inspired him to um, paint again? Uh, what if I change around the second and fourth stages of the Meta Bhavna? what would that do um, you know that can manifest as a creative project more commonly unfortunately this kind of what if manifests as anxious fantasy um, for if I don't get my tent down in time before the end of the retreat for example um, and Sangharakshita when he's talked about the imagination quoted the poet Coleridge and he made this important distinction between imagination and Fancy, what college called fancy, what Sagra Gosha referred to as fantasy, yesterday. Um, and Sagra Gosha also made this link between the imagination and faith, uh, faith being something akin uh, to the imagination of a faculty by which we can perceive reality. Um, and the imagination, like faith, is something we can develop it's a creative faculty by which we can approach truth and beauty. Yes, so, so Coleridge contrasts imagination with fancy, which is more undirected or random, uh, indiscriminate, ordinary, dull, excitable, uh, self referential, easy. Um, the imagination is uh, what's well, more difficult? It's a bit like, more like a craft like ethics even, you know, something we can be skillful at or unskillful. It's the difference, I think, between a film like Andrei Rublev and James Bond, or the difference between an effective metabhavna and more a kind of daydreaming meditation. Um, so one of, the, one of the difficulties for us in approaching these figures, and Buddhist symbol, ritual and myth in general, is that our culture denigrates the mythical in favour of the rational, and this isn't new because it's been going on for centuries. Buddhism speaks the language of reason, and that's indispensable. Sangharaksha has always stressed the importance of clear thinking, but it also speaks the language of myth and poetry, and we need both. Um, the ancient Greeks talked of logos and mythos, which is two different ways of approaching life. Logos, the language of reason and concepts and rationality and scientific inquiry. And Mythos, the more poetic way of expression. Um, Yeah, and the difficulty I said is that Logos has become over dominant to the extent that mythical has become equated with a lie. So sometimes we talk about just a myth or that's pure fiction. As in, it's not true, uh, it's not real. Um, it might be okay for entertainment or an amusing fringe activity, but it, you know, it's not there for perceiving truth. Um, so reason isn't the problem, logos isn't the problem, it's reason without the mythical, it's logos without mythos. That's when we get into difficulties. So why do we need the mythical and the poetical? Why do we need that language? And by language, I also mean image and music and so on. Um, so, Sagra Gosha went into the fact that mythos stirs us on a deeper level than the, than the rational. And that's really important, but I won't say anything more about that because um, Sagra Gosha went into it really well yesterday. Um, but mythos is also less prone to literalism literal mindedness. Logos says it is. Mythos says it's as if. Um, And if Logos is our only model or it's over dominant, we just become a bit stupid, we become literalistic, we become literal minded. So literalism, taking things literally, um, I'd just like to look at that for a, a moment. I think it's hard to see how literal-minded we are because we're so imbued with literalism. Um, so, literalism is taking the label or the model for the truth itself. Um, I remember being in Glasgow, uh, going home to Glasgow, and um, there was a mum and a little boy, and there was this beautiful big dog just bounded towards them. And the boy said, said to his mum, Mummy, what's that? And mum turned to him and said, It's a dog. That's literalism. It's, um, it's the label, you know, mystery solved. That is a dog. Um, so if mummy had been a poet, she might have better explained the, you know, the, the experience. I'm just going to read a poem about a dog. I'm just going to read a poem about a dog. This is from Mary Oliver. It's called The Storm. Now through the white orchard, my little dog romps, breaking new snow with wild feet. Running here, running there, excited, hardly able to stop. He leaps, he spins until the white snow is written upon in large, exuberant letters. A long sentence expressing the pleasures of the body in this world. Oh, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's more mythos. So we need reason, we need labels and models to get through life, you know, to get to the shops, to order taxis. We need maps to negotiate reality. But we get literal minded about them. Uh, We cling to them. It's just a deep, deep human tendency. Um, Whether it's a label, uh, whether it's a model, Marxism, Atheism, Buddhism. Uh, And we do this particularly in regard to the model of the self of me and my and mine. Uh, there's something very, very sticky about literalism. And the Buddha's teaching was an attempt, well, one of, um, one of his, what's the word? Can't get it. Um, yeah, he, he attempted to under undermine literalism. Uh, and Sangharakshita, you read the seminars and the books, there's so much there about literalism and the dangers of being literal-minded. There's the famous parable of the of the raft, like the Dharma is a raft to get across the river. You don't carry it on your back when you, you get to the other side. Uh, we recite the Heart Sutra in the Puja, uh, partly as an antidote to, to literalism. So part of what the Heart Sutra is saying is the Eightfold Path, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Skandhas, They're all of the utmost importance, but never forget their pointers, you know, their their fingers pointing to the moon. Uh, What we call Buddhism is not the experience of the Buddha. Um, And it's so important to realize this, otherwise even Buddhism is prone to the fundamentalism and violence uh, that can plague other other religions. Where, for example, the word of the Bible is taken literally uh, and dogmatically and not poetically. Uh, you know, I am the way, the truth and the life. Um, similarly, you know, a lot of atheist commentators fall into literalism because they don't get the spiritual. Uh, they don't see that true religion might be speaking poetically and mythically and imaginatively. Um, as Kalyanamati as said, the, the imagination, it's a difficult theme to get to grips with sometimes but I explain it to myself as the opposite of literalism. Um, the Romantic poet and artist, William Blake, was the champion of the imagination and that's why he's so important to Sangha Rakshita. So this is a quote from Blake. When the sun rises, do not see a round disk of fire, somewhat like a guinea? Oh no, no, I see an innumerable company of the heavenly host, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So Blake saw with the eye of the imagination. Uh, He saw the same sun as everybody else did. You know, he could describe it as a guinea if he had to. Uh, But he wasn't fooled by the label. He could see through the label into a deeper, truer, more meaningful reality. Uh, And this wasn't just a nice fantasy. Um, This wasn't just fancy. Um, when he saw the sun he perceived it genuinely with the eye of imagination it was as if he saw angels and Blake also talked of single and double vision which I think is quite a useful um, model single vision is where we take things literally objects become fixed and disconnected entities they become opaque opaque meaning they don't let in light, they're not transparent. You can't see through them like, like kind of blackened windows. Um, with double vision, we see through to a, a deeper reality, a more imaginative reality. We're not fooled by appearances. So Blake championed double vision. Um, and Buddhist myth and Buddhist symbol and these figures are windows. You know, They're transparent to help us develop double vision. To see through to uh, a deeper reality. Just want to show you a couple of pictures. Blake executed, They're both quite famous. You've seen these before, so this is Blake's picture of Newton. Uh, so it's called Newton, the father of modern science, and this is Blake taking the mickey. Um, so it's a, he's a very powerful figure I think maybe in some ways Blake admired Newton even though he was his kind of arch enemy um, he's all hunched up he's got these dividers which is kind of measuring things and he's kind of encased in, in rock and this is, is an image of kind of what Blake called single vision um, you can't, there's this beautiful colourful rock all, all around him but he just doesn't see it. He is so intent on kind of measuring things and naming things and fixing things and and labelling things. So, um, yeah, this is, in a way, this is insanity. And, you know, that's what Blake said, that literalism and single vision is a kind of of insanity without the mythical. In contrast to that, we've got um, this famous picture of Albion, so this is sometimes called Glad Day. Uh, he's got red curly hair, which might mean it's a kind of self-portrait. Um, and you can just see the contrast, the very kind of open body there, compared to the kind of hunched body of, um, of Newton. Uh, you're kind of letting life kind of flow through you. Sanger actually has often talked about the clenched fist and the open palm. Uh, and literalism is a bit like this, the clenched fist as we kind of tighten onto things. The open palm is kind of letting life kind of come come through us in a way. So this, this figure, you could say, represents the, the imagination. All this kind of colour and beauty, beauty in which you know, Albion's in, in touch with. I shall move on. Um... Yep, so Logos, reason, is kind of indispensable in Buddhism and it needs to be balanced by mythos. Um, The more imaginative way of seeing reality to avoid literalism. Perhaps we could sometimes think of seeing life more like a film or a dream. Um, When we watch a film, we know it's a film. We can be really moved, more so than in real life sometimes. But we can let it go, we turn it off, Uh, we're quite good at that. But we're not so good at letting go of real life, turning off real life when we need to. It provokes such kind of anxiety and angst at times. I was in a convention, an order convention, and I had a dream where I was by a river. Uh, It was a real sense of kind of myth and connection. Uh, It was really beautiful, I felt utterly calm, utterly at home. Uh, and I became aware in my dream, I became aware I was dreaming and I realised that in a minute I was going to wake up and go back to real life and I just felt utterly distraught uh, because this just seemed so, so much more kind of immediate and true in a way and I'd have to go back into my uh, normal life and I knew I'd kind of lose that, that sense. Mm. Okay, I'm going to leave that wee bit out because we're running out of time. Um, so, coming back to, to these figures, these um, Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Devas that Alok has painted, uh, they're imaginative and poetic representations of the Dharma. Um, as are symbols such as Vajras, you know, Mantras, Mahayana Sutras, but You know, we'll we'll just stay with these figures right now, because they're very immediate. Um, And as I said, the arts are important in building bridges to this world of symbol and myth and ritual, to these figures. Um, At some point in meditation, about two years ago, I was getting into these really quite open and expansive states of mind. Um, And with that came fear. And I began to, I couldn't understand what the fear was at first, but partly I realised it was, there was this kind of view that I had, a kind of rationalist, materialist view that I didn't know was so deep, um, that was creating this fear. Somehow, I think, as I approached uh, this kind of vastness and openness, I had a fear that uh, I was approaching not a loving void, but a kind of, empty void, a dead void, a kind of void without any sense of kind of compassion or spirituality. So there was this fear that that's what I was kind of entering and I realised I needed a figure to embody this kind of open dimension of being, a figure who would come out of the open blue sky uh, but embody love and compassion and wisdom Um, and then dissolve back into it. So I realised I needed to reconnect with my sadhana practice. So as an order member, you're given a Buddha or a Bodhisattva figure who uh, you visualise or sense, who eventually you try and become. Uh, And I realised I needed to reconnect with my own particular sadhana, um, which had become a bit abstract recently. So what I did, what I've been doing over the last two years, is I kind of created this scrapbook uh, I use lots of colour, lots of faces, uh, bits of poetry, just to try and have a lot of footholds to Vajrasattva, to the, to the white figure there, uh, to connect with, with Vajrasattva and make it more immediate and less, less abstract. Uh, and it really turned my practice around. Yeah, I figured to personify this openness, uh, to remind me that, you know, I'm not approaching an empty emptiness, but an emptiness that's alive with, with compassion and beauty. So many of you don't do a sadhana practice, but I think you can still make a really meaningful connection with with many of the, the figures here. Um, just finding ways in, like whether it's colour or reading around the figure, poems that might help make a connection, connect with the mantra. Um, So these figures represent uh, the sublime, they're of great meaning and and significance. Um, I was in a sadhana retreat here and Visantra, one of the things he said was, and I kind of wrote it down, life is much richer than we think it is, we're telling ourselves an impoverished tale. And we're telling ourselves an impoverished tale because we're oppressed by reason alone by this kind of single vision. Um, And it's tragic in a way, but we're in touch with a rich, um, with an incredibly rich and meaningful tradition. You know, here, now, um, we're safe here. So these figures embody the the fullness of wisdom and compassion and energy. Uh, They love us without condition or without reservation. Uh, you could say they're here, they're present, because they're always present. Um, and that's not just fanciful. I'm not speaking fancifully. Uh, after the treat this afternoon, we'll leave Padmaloka and we go back to real life. But this is real life. These figures are real life. And we can take these figures home with us. Though not literally. Um, what we often call real life is... The life of literalism and single vision, where we're bound by the, the thingness of things and the stuffness of stuff and the meanness of me. Uh, and the challenge, especially away from retreat, is to attempt to see with double vision, to see through all this to a, a deeper reality. And these figures help us do that. And in that sense, they're more true and more alive and more real uh, than we are. So, how is that? Um, I'll just, just to conclude, I'll I'll just give the analogy of falling in love. So we've just met someone and we've fallen in love and it's marvellous. And through them, we can get a sense of meaning and connection and beauty. Um, Unless we're very mature or skillful, we tend to cling. The beloved is a symbol for meaning and beauty, but we tend to cling to the symbol. We tend to literalise. Uh, we no longer see through the image, which becomes opaque, which becomes a thing, and we do this with ourselves as well. We love ourselves in the, in the in the same way, um, but we can fall in love with these these figures. So what what are they trying What are they trying to say to us? So they're saying with Walt Whitman, the poet. Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and the sun. There are millions of suns left. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor, f- nor feed on the specters in books. So maybe you just look. An image you particularly connect with. You can imagine that figure saying, have the courage to fall in love with me, then have the courage to let go and let me dissolve. Love, let go, love me passionately, let go, love me, let me go. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.